SwineNet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. So if we want to make improvements in mortality as an industry, certainly science, we need to continue to advance that, ask the quality research questions to learn more as an industry. But I think an important part of it that, that sometimes slips our mind is understanding the people aspect of it and the importance that the people within our production systems have on the overall performance of our system. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Elanco's Prevacent. Isn't it time your PERS protocol evolved? Elanco's Prevacent PERS is safe and effective offering at least 26 weeks of immunity duration against the respiratory form of PERS. As the first and only on-market USDA-licensed vaccine containing a contemporary Lineage 1 field strain, Prevacent is a contemporary solution. Connect with your veterinarian or an Elan co-representative to understand how Prevacent can fit your operation. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. Prevacent. It's time for a new PERS Spectre. Hello, everyone. Today, our guest is Dr. Jordan Gebhardt from Kansas State University. And the title of this episode is Wind Finish Mortality. And we'll be focusing on non-infectious causes for today. There's another episode coming out here shortly about infectious causes. How are you, Jordan? I'm doing very well, Marcio. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, really appreciate that and uh, looking forward to the chat. So as always, Jordan, if you can share um, you know, about yourself, your background, your career so far, and also how did you get involved in, in the swine industry? Well, thank you very much, Marcia, for having me. I came from a small family farm and commercial feed mill uh, in a small town in Michigan called Cedar Springs. I spent a lot of time growing up both in the feed mill and active on our family farm. We had a, a few cattle, few few hogs, and as well as did some row crop. So among all these experiences, I obviously spent quite a bit of time at the mill and, and had a strong interest in nutrition, but also spent some time with some local veterinarians, so had an interest in veterinar veterinary medicine and population production medicine as well. The time I was getting ready to, to go get my bachelor's degree, I didn't know what direction I wanted to go um, regarding nutrition or veterinary medicine. Uh, I attended Michigan State University for my, uh, with an animal science degree, and then uh, one of my great advisors there, Dr. Gretchen Hill, mm -hmm. put me in touch with the, the team at Kansas State and went out and interviewed and found out that uh, I could pursue both a nutrition degree as well as pursue veterinary medicine at Kansas State. So I did that uh, several years back and uh, did both my DVM and PhD in swine nutrition at K-State. 
finished up those uh, just recently in 2019, and I stayed on at K-State. Um, my current role is as a postdoctoral fellow within the Applied Swine Nutrition team at Kansas State University. Very nice. Yeah, that's pretty tough accomplishment right there with both the the PhD and DVM at the same time. So that's it's amazing, and, and, and um, I always wanted to have you here in the podcast, so I'm super excited for yeah. to get your insights here. So first one, Jordan, is, um, you know, there are obvious welfare impacts of uh, wind finish mortality. What is the economic impact of, say, 1% improvement in wind finish mortality? So it, it, a lot of the, the drivers of mortality and, and a lot of the contributing factors are to the specific production setting, um, a, sp- a specific production system, for example. But as an industry, the, taking a broad look at, at the problem as a whole, there certainly are the welfare implications of mortality is, is very real. And as an industry, we need to, to make sure we're doing what's best in the animal's best interest, not only to, uh, to provide safe, wholesome food, but also appropriately take care of those animals we have the opportunity to raise as producers. So there's a number of resources that are available uh, that provide estimates of mortality for the U.S. swine industry as a whole. Um, one of the best of those would be the um, pork industry productivity analysis mm-hmm. that uh, Dr. Stalder through Iowa State has put together for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And one of the most sets of data, most current, would be from 2017. And some of those numbers, just for an example, um, would be across the industry average, what they report, uh, 4.8% nursery mortality. Mortality, mm-hmm. just over 5% on the finishing side, and then if a combined wean-to-finish setup, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8% wean-to-finish mortality. Okay. So if we just put some rough numbers to, to those industry levels of mortality with that most recent data and, that, and make some assumptions uh, in the U.S. that we produce anywhere in the neighborhood of 120 million pigs um, uh, in 2017, for example, mm-hmm. and if we overlay that 8% wean-to-finish mortality, that comes up with a number of about 10 million animals that are lost using those assumptions. Mm -hmm. Again, if we make some more assumptions on a base carcass price, say $50 for easy math, and a carcass weight of 215 pounds, put it up together with those industry losses are somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, billion with a B. So obviously, if, if we keep those animals alive, there certainly would be additional feed cost and other expenses and reduce growth performance by having more animals in, a, in the same um, level of production capacity as far as space, feeder space, et cetera. So there's certainly, uh, we're making a lot of assumptions, but the overall impact on the industry is very, very large. Very big, amazing. Um, yeah, and, and, and a lot of times when people uh, run up, you know, what, what factors are the most economically important to production, mortality always comes. Absolutely. That's right. Very nice. So now something that we want to do different um, on the podcast today is, you know, some type of rapid fire questions. So I would say the name of a mortality cause and you, you make a brief comment about it. So let's start with you know, anatomic abnormalities, and we're basing this off of a recent review that you've done, so we have some categories here. First one, uh, you named acute abdominal 
incidents. So uh, I'm guessing that's tor- torsions. <laughs> yeah. So acute abdominal incidents is a, a fancy way of classifying a, a number of different issues. Uh, primarily, the most common being mesenteric torsion, mm-hmm. or uh, is, at a barn level, most commonly referred to as a, a twisted gut or torsion. Um, so based on reviewing the literature, it seems like there isn't a clear consensus as to what exactly causes these. There certainly are some, some theories as to what are some predisposing causes to cause this issue. But from a literature perspective, there really isn't a clear consensus as to why exactly this is caused and what we do about it as an industry. Very good. How about lameness? Certain, certain aspects or certain types of lameness are easily identifiable. If a pig gets its leg caught in a broken slat or in a, a defective gating, certainly if they break a leg, you can notice that and identify that pretty easy. Right. Lameness is, is a lot more difficult to understand, not only from the identifying, but also from understanding what some of those causes are. Um, so there are some estimates, um, and it depends uh, what the source would be as to the prevalence of lameness, but somewhere in the range of a half percent of finishing pigs up to 2% in some, um, some estimates. And again, this can be a number of different uh, facility factors, um, slippery concrete slats, for example, or also some infectious contributing factors as well, potentially. Very good. Yeah, definitely take some uh, pigmanship right there uh, to identify early early lameness. Uh, Absolutely. The animal husbandry and, and just those basic uh, uh, people skills, understanding, identifying animals quickly, um, certainly with, with the topic of mortality as a whole, the human aspect of that is critically important. Very nice. How about umbilical herniation? Umbilical hernias are reported anywhere from 0.7% to 1.5% of post-weaning pigs, um, and certainly there would be some scenarios and, um, where that, those numbers could differ and, and be more problematic. They, they also oftentimes don't directly result in death. Um, if they're small enough, they can get along well, they can stay on feed, and the pigs can grow quite well. However, as that animal ages, they can get quite large. Um, if it blocks blood flow to the intestine or other abdominal organs, that certainly can, can result in acute death. And finally, if, if, that, uh, if it becomes ulcerated or if they're dragging it on the ground, for example, that's a, a clear example where animal welfare needs to be the utmost priority. And, uh, and as producers, we need to make sure that we are doing the best we can to make sure those animals are, are not suffering in any way. So umbilical hernias, in mild cases, they can get along and, and may be able to be marketed to alternative markets at a lighter body weight. But in severe scenarios, they certainly need to be taken care of to minimize any animal suffering. Very good. How about a scrotal or inguinal uh, herniation? That's an interesting one, Marcio. It's a relatively in- infrequent l- uh, event, and over time there have been some reports of genetic associations with certain genetic traits and, and incidents of herniation. Overall, though, it's a, it's a relatively rare event. Uh, less than 1% um, of all finishing pigs would be affected, and that estimate probably is, is much lower than that 1% even in commercial production. Right. How about rectal prolapses? 
Rectal prolapses, again, going back to a, the animal welfare importance. Um, and many times, if, if we quickly identify that and isolate those animals from their pen mates so they're not uh, chewing on that or are causing any additional trauma to that, uh, the organ and the aspects that are prolapsed, um, many times they'll heal on their own and do quite well. But if, it, uh, if we don't identify it quickly and the pen mates have a chance to further disrupt and damage that tissue, mm-hmm. creating a lot of bleeding, that certainly can be very problematic. And again, going back to the welfare considerations in severe cases, we certainly want to minimize animal suffering. Yes. And how about gastric ulcers? Ulcers are an interesting topic and, and having a, um, both with a background in nutrition and understanding a little bit about particle size and, and the impact that particle size and feed processing such as pelleting has on the feed efficiency and l- utilization of feed to make gain within the pigs. But also the flip side and, and seeing some of the lesions from a veterinary perspective, ulcers are really quite interesting. There's a lot of things that uh, have been associated with increasing the prevalence of ulcers, just named a few of them, pelleting of the diets, for example, and fine particle sizes. But it's interesting in that going in and digging into the literature, as an industry, a lot of those those types of contributing factors are generally accepted but really aren't well documented in the literature. Right. And that goes back to, to a number of different things, um, the having research studies that are large enough to detect differences, um, and, and a lot of those contributing factors don't lead to a body of evidence in the literature anyway that make these associations very clear. So we think that a lot of these causes and contributing factors are associated, but from a literature perspective, it's really not well defined. Right, and then uh, palatine, right? A little bit of palatine. Absolutely, and then from a from a intervention standpoint, pelleting has positive impacts on on feed utilization and feed efficiency, but also understanding the mortality component of that too certainly needs to be taken into consideration on a system-by-system basis using the the genetic lines and the the environmental conditions and the production setting specific to, to where they would be being fed. Very good. So let's transition to toxicity. Uh, first one, of course, is uh, mycotoxins. So what, what are your thoughts there? Mycotoxins, it, it seems, are, are becoming more and more prevalent and identified with greater fre- frequency in, in pretty wide geographic areas of the United States. It isn't all that clear as to, to why this is occurring, but I, I would think, let's say the general consensus is that it's becoming more and more of an issue. From a mortality perspective, most of the mycotoxins don't directly lead to mortality. In some scenarios, there are some examples. Um, in Kansas recently, the last several years, there have been some hot pockets of fumonacin, and in fed in high levels certainly can lead to pulmonary edema and deaths in pigs and other species. But largely, mycotoxins have negative impact on growth performance, but in most cases don't directly contribute to mortality. Very good. How about uh, sodium ion toxicosis? So again, that's another fancy word for essentially having lack of access uh, to water of pigs. Whether you're loading a site and had the water shut off and don't notice that it was off for a couple days and then you flip the valve and turn it on and those animals suddenly have access to water. And also it can occur with frozen water lines and as soon as you unfreeze those lines, pigs have ad libitum access to water and they indulge too much water and the sodium ion concentration across different membranes in the body is disrupted based on that sudden access to water and that certainly can lead to very high death rates. 
the overall occurrence of this toxicosis is relatively rare, mm-hmm. and most of the time it's human error that leads to this, mm-hmm. but when it does occur, it can be very, very significant. Yes, I, I had a case one time in Brazil. It was interesting, it was one pan. Yeah, there are some really good case studies that come out of Brazil um, regarding that, and, and some good histologic lesions and, and showing some of it from a, from a tissue standpoint as to what the effects are. Interesting. How about uh, ionophore toxicosis? That's uh, ionophores are commonly used in uh, a number of different species. So uh, they're commonly housed and in, in, um, included in our feed mills. And this again goes back to the most common is human error or machinery error. That if we uh, accidentally have a malfunction with a piece of equipment or within our formulation, we have a huge error and include way too much, and that ends up in the feed. That certainly can lead to catastrophic uh, events if that ends up getting fed. So not all that common, but when it does occur, it can have some pretty significant impacts. Very good. How about other toxins in general of uh, lower incidence? And there's a number of uh, just about any compound in nature. If it, if the dose is adequate, it can cause toxicity. Like so water, some, just it, like water. Absolutely. So water <laughs> is, is essential water. to survival, but uh, too much of it in certain scenarios can be detrimental. Um, and some other examples would be nitrites, gas intoxication, uh, if ventilation failures, and, and things along those lines, um, as well as ammonia and other different noxious chemicals. So these, again, aren't all that common, but when they do occur, they can have really significant impacts. Very good. Let's transition to animal factors, and first one being genetics. So the first word that I would say about genetics is just complex. There, there's a tremendous amount of progress made from a genetic selection and Im- improvement over time. Um, in regards to mortality in the published literature, there really isn't a whole lot of information. This, the genetic companies certainly have those measures and have some of that information, but from in the context of the publicly available peer-reviewed literature, there really isn't a lot of information in this area. How about uh, birth weights? Birth weight's really important um, in both the, from a pre and post weaning mortality standpoint. And there are numerous studies with, that demonstrate that pigs with a lower birth weight are associated with greater levels of mortality compared to their heavier counterparts. And as an aside, this is a, a good example of an, a correlation versus causation. Is the body weight directly resulting in lower levels of mortality, or is it some other characteristic that influences both the birth weight as well as influences mortality? So clearly these measures are associated, but understanding the underlying cause is a little bit more challenging. And it's important to remember is and be critical of, of uh, science and of what we do as an industry, being critical is an important aspect of that for continued improvement and growth and development remembering that association does not directly imply causation. Right, super interesting. And, and one comment I have in birth weight is that, okay, well, we know that heavier birth weights are better performance and also mortality. But one thing that uh, sometimes I think we extrapolate too far is that if we change something in diet in late gestation or in gestation or, and, uh, or management, and it changes that birth weight, which First, it's very rare, but let's say if it do, yes. <laughs> but if you do, the other question is, don't assume it's going to have the same effect just from a normal genetic, you know, effect. So Absolutely. a lot of times we cross that boundary there without even 
a lot of a lot of things like that don't necessarily apply, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a very interesting topic, and and one that uh, among all the the factors that put do contribute to mortality is certainly an area that is is very important and as an industry we need to continue to ask those questions continue to conduct well well ran research to help uh, identify some of these things and make improvements that makes sense how about them parity and that's another one that um, in measures of mortality and offspring from gilts is pretty routinely measured at higher levels compared to uh, multi-parity females. And again, there's a lot of theories as to why this happens. Um, and some of that can be as simple as going back to differences in birth weight or litter size between parity of those females, as well as colostrum quantity, quality. Um, but I, I would say that uh, these associations um, with parity and mortality have been pr well documented. I don't think we understand fully the why behind this association. Right, and also from an implementation standpoint, I know some folks, I believe in Canada, also uh, Brazil, I see that quite a lot, uh, you know, have separate farms, you know, for just goods or uh, things like that in nature. But um, yeah, I, I also question, you know, the trade-off there, should we implement that or not? From Absolutely, and, and within a production system, we certainly need replacement females, so we, are all, we will always have, have guilt in the system to some degree. Um, so that's something that uh, we need to learn more about and learn how to manage, but we're not going to be able to eliminate guilt by any means. Very good. How about some uh, transition in here to some facility factors? Uh, what do you have in mind there? So one of those uh, is the environment as a whole. We know that pigs need air, water, and feed, and those are the foundations of success in pig production. Controlling the environment, such as airflow, air quality, temperature, and humidity, those are all important aspects of that. From a, the published literature standpoint, it's very difficult to measure a correlation or a uh, distinct pattern between those different factors and the outcome of mortality. Again, with system and production system specific data, uh, a lot of people have access to this types, these types of information. However, from a, uh, the body of literature standpoint, uh, where it's really underpopulated with uh, strong evidence regarding these different types of facility factors. Very good. How about season? So seasonality is another, if we look at production system data sets, the seasonality of mortality we see in many cases. And it's an, another example of the fallacy we sometimes fall into with association and causation. We see that in certain times of year, there certainly is higher levels of mortality. Is it because of the ventilation in winter months is more difficult to manage? Is it because uh, the incidence of certain diseases is more common in the winter months? PERS virus is one example of that. Um, or is it the, just the environment outside colder weather as a generalization is a better environment for different pathogens, viruses, for example, to survive for longer periods of time? So is it the, the aspects of environmental control, disease management? Um, so what exactly is leading to it? But we certainly do see differences uh, among season and levels of mortality. Right. How about nutrient deficiencies? 
This is an example that um, with gross errors and significant clear errors, um, we certainly can result in some, some lesions and some problems. One example would be calcium-phosphorus ratio. Within the context of most reasonably formulated diets, it's not a big issue. Mm -hmm. However, if there's errors in either very significant errors in formulation or mix-ups at the feed mill, uh, we certainly can have problems with, uh, with calcium to phosphorus levels and certainly can lead to broken bones, broken backs, and other issues. Um, but from a, a general standpoint, with most reasonable nutrition programs, not an issue. However, when significant problems occur, most commonly um, with a feed mill, that certainly can be a problem. Another example with uh, regarding nutrition would be vitamin E and selenium. That's a, if we don't give those um, and we have zero inclusion of either of those uh, from an experimental setting, we certainly can induce mulberry heart disease. Mm -hmm. So excess oxidative stress can cause these damages that are characteristic of mulberry heart disease. But just because we have a diagnosis of mulberry heart disease does not necessarily mean that the vitamin E right. and selenium is the is a primarily underlying cause. Right. So this is far more complex than we understand. Yes. We can induce mulberry heart disease without vitamin E and selenium, but just because we have that diagnosis does not necessarily mean that uh, it's as simple as increasing the levels of vitamin E in the diet. Yeah, more like uh, oxidative stress. Yeah, it's it's complex. There's an interaction, we think, of a number of different factors that potentially could contribute. Um, so the mechanism isn't as right. um, clear from point A to point B as sometimes we would like to think. Right, fast growth and other things. And one comment is I went back to the disease of swine and, and trying to really dig into, okay, let's go back to this original research, right? And I believe it was from 1953. Yep. And was even like was not even a randomized study, I believe. Absolutely. So it's so interesting because oh, people are so assured, like yep. oh, mulberry heart disease, oh, vitamin E and selenium. Well, let's like let's look at the data. Not quite, you know what I mean? Yeah, and there's a lot of data from the '70s. That was an area that they focused a lot of time and attention and put out publications in that area. And more recently, there's been some information out of the diagnostic lab through Iowa State summarizing cases and associations with, with different factors. And, and to, to briefly summarize that in a few words, it's not as simple as we like to think. Right. Very nice. How about now uh, management factors? So uh, pre-weaning uh, management. So pre-weaning management uh, is interesting, is incredibly important to the overall production of that animal, both from a, a growth performance standpoint, but also from a survivability aspect. Certain aspects of pre-weaning management that are most important is really early on in that piglet's life, getting them dry, perhaps cross-fostering, clostrum intake, managing that early period in the pig's life seems to have long-term impacts. One association that uh, is, is shown up several times in the literature is the association between cross-fostering and increased levels of both pre- and post-weaning mortality, which is kind of counterintuitive, but then we need to understand how those studies were conducted and understand what that data is really telling us. One example, or one way that could be interpreted, is that those animals that were had greater likelihood of being cross-fostered probably were the smaller birth weight piglets, the piglets that didn't get started as well, right coming out after birth, and those perhaps were at a higher likelihood of being cross-fostered, which naturally would make sense as to why that would be, they would be associated with great, greater levels of mortality. 
So understanding this early period is really important from a mortality aspect, but we really don't have the solutions right now. There's, this is an area that, that in the literature we need more well done studies um, to further understand this very important time in that pig's life. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, that's huge, probably one of the biggest uh, aspects right here, right, when you think about mortality. And, and if you think about the variation around the globe, right, some countries at about 15% or even more, and then others, large scale, you know, very densely populated countries uh, with about, you know, 6%, 7%. And I think a lot of that goes back to the human aspect. Yeah. And pre-weaning management, it's about the people, the people doing those jobs. And, and for what I'm, from, the, from what I've seen in limited experience and exposure is those farms that, that do a well, good job of, in this area, it's all people-driven. And uh, those employees carrying a lot, um, really taking pride and passion in what they do sense of urgency and um, training and uh, yes of course the labor cost there's a component there but lots of opportunities so that's that's absolutely it's pretty good how about winning age and weight so going beyond the the average weaning age and say we're at an 18 day weaning age or 21 or 24 or whatever that number may be and saying what the average weight is understanding the variability of that is very important the data pretty clearly shows that in many cases, older pigs and heavier pigs have greater chances of long-term survivability. But a 21-day average weaning weight with some litters as young as 16 and some 25 days of age is a lot different than a 21-day weaning age where every litter is between 20 and 22 days of age. So understanding that variability within that population of animals being weaned is very important. So weaning age goes much beyond just a single number. Understanding the variability within that population is really important. Yes, if the farm is weaning five times a week versus two times a week, changes completely the... Yep, yep, and that, uh, and that uh, potentially could have implications and and it's easy to to think about a number and and throw that one number out but understanding the complexity of the system is really important right how about the you know the amount of time that it takes to fill the barn and also this number of sources of pigs yeah, and again, this goes back to not only from a health management standpoint and commingling and, and different health statuses of animals coming in together to, to one uh, growing pig site, but also goes back to the, the variability within that population. If it takes a long period of time to fill that, that, that barn, that physical airspace, a room within a barn or a whole barn, there's more variability within that population, which then predisposes us to greater likelihood that the older animals in the population could potentially spread a certain disease to the younger animals. So again, this is an example of the variability in the population is really important to identify and critically evaluate. Very interesting. And um, how about sp uh, space, feed, and, and water availability? So all of these have pretty clear associations and impacts on growth performance, um, feed, in, feed efficiency, feed intake, gain, etc. But within the context of normal production values and normal ranges, they really don't seem to have a huge impact on mortality from the literature that I found. Interesting. 
How about a uh, number of animals per pan? Again, that's one that um, there's been a lot of research conducted in that area, but there, there really isn't a clear measure between the number of animals within a pen and mortality. So really, is, is the number of animals within that group really isn't a good indicator, um, in my opinion, of the expected mortality. How about uh, transportation? So transportation in the swine industry is an event that occurs on a, on a daily basis and, and transportation losses unfortunately are a part of that. Not to accept that is, is being acceptable by any means and there's always room for improvement. Um, but losses frequently occur at pretty low levels with estimates ranging from 0.01 up to 0.22% um, on a large scale. Um, so overall, this makes up a, a relatively low proportion of the overall post-weaning mortality. Yes, and it's a good point there. If you have more than, say, a quarter percent mortality there in transportation, it's a good, good to know that, hey, you have to take a look because those pigs are so heavy. And, Absolutely. And, and mortality as a whole, there's to, to address it and to reduce it. Um, on, a, on a large scale, it takes a lot of small interventions and a lot of small contributing factors add up to the number that, that we deal with as an industry. Um, so even things as, as small as that, in some scenarios, if it creeps up, uh, we may need to intervene and, and change our practices and um, to further reduce and, and keep as many of those animals alive until their final market destination as possible. Very good. How about sanitation? Well, from a veterinary perspective, and even the, the animal scientists and, and folks at SLAT level in the bar know that sanitation is really important. Um, from an infectious disease standpoint, maintaining a high level of sanitation is critically important. From the literature standpoint and, and what the impact of varying levels of sanitation have on mortality on a large scale to get good estimates really is difficult to do and, and we largely don't have a lot of good data in this area. So we know it's important, mm -hmm. we just, it's difficult to put a number on it. Right. Very good, Jordan. Uh, do you have any final thoughts here on no infectious cause of, of mortality? So non-infectious causes as a whole is a diverse background of different toxicities, animal, environmental factors. So really there's no silver bullet when it comes to mortality. There's no right. one thing that we can change to completely eliminate or reduce the problem. We all know that, but the, the process of going through the literature really helps concrete that, that that's the case. Some final thoughts as to, to what we do about it or, or what the next steps are. We, we've identified some of these different areas, so what do we do about it as an industry? That's the important takeaway. And I think that the best thing we can do once we identify some of these areas it really goes back to the people. What we do in pig production and agriculture as a whole is very dependent upon the people, our employees, our support staff, our, the management of our different production systems. So if we want to make improvements in mortality as an industry, certainly science, we need to continue to advance that, ask the quality research questions to learn more as an industry. But I think an important part of it that, that sometimes slips our mind is understanding the people aspect of it and the importance that the people within our production systems have on the overall performance of our system and overall keeping our animals um, and making them as healthy and as productive as possible and minimizing losses attributed to due to mortality. Yes, that makes total sense. And something that comes to mind is, you know, if you have a problem, let's say proven mortality that's very high, you know, you know, reach out to another 
producer, you know, trying to figure out, hey, why, you know, why are you doing that? You have a six or seven percent pre-mortality, and see what could you implement, you know, from that standpoint, and exchange thoughts and, and ideas right there. Absolutely, a, a collaborative environment and, and bouncing ideas off each other and, and working together as an industry, I think is the best way to move forward and address this issue. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by servitude and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technologies and efficient operation. For all swine-related news and information, go to swineweb.com. It is time to our famous three. So now, Jordan, the three questions we ask every guest, every episode, what is your favorite pig-related book or resource? Yeah, so the most difficult part of uh, once you asked me to, to be involved, Marcio, and sit down and discuss was, was coming up with for the three questions. Um, <laughs> so the, the, a pretty generic answer for the, the swine-related uh, book, I'd have to say, is the diseases of swine. Mm-hmm. There's a, the 11th edition just came out last year. Mm-hmm. Being young and, and still have a tremendous amount to learn, it is a, just a great resource for understanding different diseases and, and how those diseases work from an epidemiology, immunology standpoint. So I really, I find myself uh, using that resource on a weekly, for sure, basis and, and trying to, to build that knowledge base. So just a, a great resource. Very nice. How about your favorite book or resource in general? I think this this takes me back a ways, and mm-hmm. um, and I think it, it really helps to to lay the groundwork of, of where I am and what I want to do and in, in my passion for agriculture. And it's a, a book by Laura Ingalls Wilder called Farmer Boy. Mm-hmm. The The story is Almanzo Wilder, uh, her husband. It's a story of his upbringing in upstate New York in the 1860s. It describes the, the daily challenges of, of milking cows and, mm. and doing agriculture from a young age. So I read this uh, as a young boy and, and really helped instill the passion for agriculture in me um, and understanding that uh, that's really something that I enjoy doing and and taking care of the animals and seeing them grow and develop and the entrepreneurship and business aspect of of agriculture really got me to young age and and I think uh, not only being involved in the feed mill and farm but really this book I think was was very important to my upbringing and and shaped that passion that I have for for producers for agriculture and for pigs right that's very cool. Wow, yeah, I know that book. What do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? So I think the there's a lot of different directions that in in going back and listening to all your episodes, the the insight that your guests have in this area is extremely enlightening, and and I I absolutely agree with with what they say. But for me to to distill all those ideas down into into a couple brief points would be the desire to help others through continuous improvement, continuing to learn, continuing to improve how we do things, both personally in our growth and development, but also as an industry. 
And as a part of that, what I see is is important and in, in what really successful people do is putting the needs of others in front of your own needs. Um, always helping your colleagues, helping coworkers, helping your family, and putting the collective needs of everybody above our own desires or our own personal needs. So I think the the desire for improvement and helping others really is what drives success. Very good. Thanks for for your thoughts right there. Appreciate that. That makes sense. Very cool, Jordan. Well, thanks so much for being part of this episode today and uh, looking forward to the next episode. Thank you very much for having me, Marcio. I've enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. We just crossed 15,000 downloads of our episodes and I wanted to say thank you. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we even gonna have some controversial topics of the global swine industry. So you can leverage that knowledge in your day to day. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our wait list. We'll talk soon.